Good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, to be with you, and uh, to worship the Lord together with you. Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and turn to the book of Philippians as we continue in our study of this book. And as you're turning there, I'm uh, going to ask you, how many of you enjoy conflict? When I was preparing this message this past week, none of you raised your hands, by the way, at least none that I saw. If you want to fight about it, we can take that outside later. <laughs> but we don't enjoy conflict naturally, right? There are some of us who are uh, ready for a fight, but typically we don't enjoy conflict. This past week, we were uh, doing some work in the office, and uh, Lisa noticed the, the sermon topic, and our, our title uh, is not that one. I don't know, I've got the wrong slide up or something. Go ahead and move to the next, let's see if we've got the right one. That is not our title. So I, uh, we've got conflict right off. <laughs> Lisa and I were talking about this. Uh, it may not be in your... Uh, in your slide, we had some problem there with conflict technology-wise, uh, but Lisa noticed this and said, I don't like it when you preach on conflict. I said, but it's in the text. You just can't skip it. You've got to work your way through it, and so it's in the text. Actually, our title is not our home. That was last week's title. Our title is Confronting Conflict, and that is where we will be this morning, and so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3, and I'm going to move ahead here and see... Uh, no, I, we have the entire wrong one on my screen, so you guys work out if you can. Uh, we had some technical difficulties in the office where something changed in the middle of the week. We thought we got it fixed, but evidently uh, we did not, so it became its own sermon illustration. Uh, I, I appreciated this. I was preparing for this. We're in Philippians 4. I was preparing for this morning, and uh, as I was reading and studying along, I always look for illustrations as I'm reading, whether it be through commentaries or just in everyday life, the newspaper, or whatever. Uh, I read this from Warren Wiersbe. He told a story about his daughter many years ago when she was a, a young girl, and she jumps off the bus, and this is how he, he writes. He says, my daughter jumped off the school bus as it stopped in front of our house and slammed her way through the front door. She marched defiantly up the stairs to her room and again slammed the door. All while she was muttering under her breath, people, 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 people. I went to her door and knocked softly. May I come in? She replied, no. I tried again. But she said it even more belligerently, no. I asked, why can't I come in? And I love this. Her answer because you're a people. You know, there is this idea that uh, we as Christians are free from conflict, but the reality is when you interact with other people, one or more other people, conflict can and does ensue. And so that is where we are at as we are coming into Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul has given to us this wonderful reminder of the great truths of uh, what we have learned to this point of following his example, building up to this grand crescendo of our home where we were last week, looking ahead to our home. But then he pulls back. He pulls back in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And he's reminding us of what life looks like today. And suddenly he turns. And if anybody was sleeping in the auditorium when this letter was read, two names come out and every eye is open. He says this in verse 2, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Wow, can you imagine the first day this is read in the... Pastor, perhaps Epaphroditus himself, having brought this letter to Philippi, reads these words. You can anticipate, probably, because he was with Paul at the writing of Philippi, or to, to the Philippians in Philippi. And so he probably anticipated this moment. 
And as a speaker, he's probably not looking wherever Yudia is sitting at. He's probably not looking where Sentaki is probably, he's probably looking up at this point because this is a contentious moment in the book of Philippians. The idea that we focus on this morning is this. Paul provides a refreshing demonstration of grace in confronting conflict. Paul provides a refreshing demonstration of grace in confronting conflict. Beloved, there is something that each one of us needs to learn from the text that is before us. If you are a people, and you are, then you are going to encounter conflict with another person. But if you are a person on the outside of the conflict, you have a responsibility and role as well. And Paul is going to address all of the parties involved as we dig into the text that is before us. As we do so, obviously conflict is a topic that we need to perpetually bring before our great God. It is something that Jesus prayed, as Scott read for us to open our service this morning. It is something that Jesus prayed that unity would persist in the church. And so therefore, we need to be those who are diligent in bringing these requests as Christ did on His way to the cross as Christ did before the Father. Let us do that now as we begin this morning. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to study a topic that is so prevalent, a topic that is one that brings shame to us when we're involved in it. It causes us to try to distance ourselves from those who are perpetually participating in it. But Lord, I pray that we would be those who, like Paul, would understand with a gracious endeavor how to resolve and how to confront conflict. Lord, I praise you that you didn't make us to be those who would just step in line in every point. Lord, I do also praise you that you brought to us unity in Christ. And as we sang even moments ago, and as we reminded ourselves in John chapter 17, it is the gospel of Christ that is important, that is at stake. And so we ask that you would bring glory to yourself as we study these words together, that you alone would be glorified, and that we would be those who are transformed, being servants faithful and true to your word, obedient in every way. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Paul begins, and we're going to work in verses 2 and 3. Paul begins by reminding us of a gracious confrontation. What does that look like? A gracious confrontation. We go to verses 2 and 3, and we're going to study these together this morning. And he again says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion... Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It is fascinating that Paul has been writing along to this point. He's going to encourage the church. He has already, and he will again, to encourage the church to be those who are constantly rejoicing. Rejoicing always. And again, I say rejoice. So Paul is building us to that point. He's reminded us of the race, that we are to lean in, to finish well, to follow the examples of the racers who have gone on before who have followed the Lord, such as Paul. He's given us two other examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now he has brought us into uh, this point where he has reminded us of what we ought to avoid and what we ought to pursue and what is our end goal, what is the end outcome of all of this. And now he stops and he pulls out and the lens narrows to two ladies as Paul begins a diplomatic approach. A diplomatic approach. Imagine sitting in the church service when this letter is first read. Perhaps you're listening and you're following along, perhaps Epaphroditus is reading and, and he's giving a bit of explanation and so forth and uh, suddenly the names of two ladies are read and you know those two ladies. Not only do you know them, but you know that there's been some tension. Whenever you walk past them in the foyer, you notice that they kind of avert eyes from one another. They just try to slip out without talking to one another. In fact, you probably saw them at the grocery store a week or two ago and noticed that when they were walking back and forth down the aisles, 
Suddenly they said, oh, we're following uh, the path that continues to cause us to be on the collision path with each other, and they go to two different parts of the store. Perhaps you've noticed these things, and you're sitting in the, this first church, or the church of Philippi, as this letter's being read, and you say, I know exactly the problems. Yet even though the two names are read, Paul remains diplomatic. In fact, think about it this way. Can you imagine being uh, written in for all eternity as one of the two ladies that had conflict? I can't imagine these names showing up. And I imagine that they have a lot of conversations in heaven related to these things. But as these two names are read, Paul remains diplomatic. Conflict will come, and listen carefully, Satan will do everything he can to send his fiery darts of division into Christian relationships. And you and I are often willing participants. We will find things to argue over, from the way the grass is cut outside, to the color of the walls, to various other non theological doctrinal issues and various theological doctrinal issues and we will fight over those things and satan desires us to be at odds with one another and paul provides a helpful example of conflict resolution that all of us should be paying attention to all of us whether it's in marriage whether it's in the church or whether it's between two other believers who are maybe not even attending the same church, but they're at odds with one another. And so we're going to find some helpful instructions along the way. But notice Paul's diplomatic approach right here. First, even in calling out their names, Paul does not give detail behind the disharmony. Isn't that fascinating? Paul calls out their names. But he does not say, these two ladies who are in your midst, who are warring with one another because one wants one's position and the other one wants the other's position. He doesn't say that. He says, I entreat both ladies, which we're going to get to that phrase in just a moment. But first, we recognize that Paul is saying, I entreat both ladies. I'm not going to give you the details of all the sordid reasons for their conflict because it doesn't matter. You and I tend to argue over things that don't matter. In the grand scope of eternity, the two names mattered enough to be written down in the inspired word of God but the conflict did not matter. Yudia and Syntyche are at odds. Paul doesn't say why. That's the first reminder of conflict resolution is about the restoration of people, not events. Second, Paul entreats both ladies, and the word for entreat means I appeal or even I encourage you. When Paul mentions you by name in his letters, he's usually not encouraging you. He's usually calling you out for something, right? Think of Alexander the coppersmith. He's either calling you out for sin that you have done, or he is causing reason for praise, such as what he has done with Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so there's, there's oftentimes where Paul will do one of the two extremes, but he never really does it this way. This is very unique for even Paul to write this. Paul could have thrown his apostolic weight and said, I demand you get things together. Don't you see the damage that you're doing? And isn't that the way that we typically respond to conflict? When we see two people fighting, we're like, what's your problem? Get over it. Go take care of it somehow. Get over it and get on with it. Paul does not do that. Instead, he could have thrown his apostolic weight behind it, but now instead he personally appeals to them. So sisters, come on. Let us come together. Let us work out the details that have caused the disharmony. Listen carefully, church. Whether you are involved in conflict or you're not involved in a specific conflict, disunity will rob the church of its power. The local church of its power. It will not rob the universal church. It cannot do that but it will rob the local church of its power and it will destroy the testimony of the local church. And as I say those words, 
I have had the opportunity to pastor those churches like this that have been robbed of their testimony because of disunity. I praise God that that is not us. But it is so simple for us to slip in, so easy for us to slip in to disunity. And you can imagine the church at Philippi, this church that was started in such a miraculous way, we're going to review in just a moment, church that was started through a ladies' Bible study on the riverbanks. And now that church has grown up, and it's starting to really make an impact for the name of Christ. People are being saved and coming into the church, and you can see the church growing. And now, suddenly, you have two, Judea and Syntyche, and they're on two sides. And they're heaping to themselves a following. If you have to heap to yourself a following, there's a problem already. If you have to go out and begin to orchestrate followers to follow after you, there's a problem, and disunity is at its core. Disunity will rob the church of its power, and it can easily destroy your testimony, testimony of the church and your personal testimony. So Paul is very careful that he is not giving details. He's not giving reason for gossip. He's not saying what he thinks the church knows. It's probably all, it's written all over the church itself, but Paul doesn't go into the details behind the disharmony. He appeals to both ladies. He's not picking sides. And that's our third point. Paul refuses to choose sides. He refuses to choose sides. The news of the conflict was certainly evident in the church. Others knew these two ladies by name. They'd probably been entreated to join their side or the other. News of the conflict was not new to the church. Others knew that these two ladies were at odds. However, Paul does not say, I entreat Judea to live in harmony with Syntyche. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say one's, one's a little more right than the others. He says, I entreat both. He does not take sides. Paul appeals to them both equally. He appeals to their following after the Lord. He refuses, as he does so, he refuses to berate either one of these women or both. And Paul, we know, certainly knows the headaches of conflict. You remember when Paul and Barnabas were at odds over the second missionary journey, and the one that they were odds over was John Mark. John Mark was uh, unfaithful. He didn't stay the course during the first missionary journey. And Barnabas is telling Paul, Paul, let's take John Mark again. And Paul says, he abandoned us. I'm not taking him. I refuse to take one who walks away. So grievous was the argument between the two that Barnabas and Paul would separate and go their different ways. Barnabas with John Mark, Paul taking Silas. And yet at the end of Paul's life, John Mark was there to minister to him. The book of Philippians doesn't say this, but the book of Philippians was only written a few years before the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. It's possible that at this point, John Mark is just now starting to make his impression upon Paul, which would cause Paul to say, I love John Mark. I love John Mark. We don't know because Philippians doesn't say, but it is about this time that John Mark would begin to minister to the Apostle Paul. Paul knows the headache of conflict. He knows the heartache of separation and disunity. But by the time of this letter, you see Paul's heart changing, even towards John Mark. And it's certainly expressed as he seeks to navigate through distance through quill to parchment, through Epaphroditus who delivers the letter to whoever is reading the letter, he is making his appeal that these two women would resolve their conflict, that Judea and Syntyche would come together in harmony. And Paul then gives some instructions for harmony. Having established the call to unity, Paul calls these two women to live in harmony, not over their disagreements, but in the Lord. That's an important phrase that we cannot miss. 
a key to resolving conflict is not calling those who are at odds to have the same mind on a subject and to have total agreement on that subject. Praise God, you and I can have varying opinions of various things and not have disharmony in those. Paul is not calling for robotic-type fellowship. He's not calling for these two ladies to have the exact same mind on whatever issue that has been dividing them, but he is calling them to have the same mind, the same heart, to be like-minded because of the Lord, in the things of the Lord. The phrase to live in harmony literally means to have the same mind. But it is not the same mind on the topic of division, it's the same mind regarding Christ. as That is the object of having the same mind. These two might be disagreeing about a number of things, and you may be disagreeing with another about a number of things. But as fellow believers, you certainly can agree on the most important things, that is Christ. And you must agree there. And that is what sets you apart from everyone else in the world. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a source of unity. And that source of unity is the unifier himself. The one who reconciled God to man, man to God. These ladies are divided. But being right with the Lord was the starting place. The common ground that they had in Christ. Being right with the Lord was... The initial stage, the first step of being right with each other. If your relationship, listen carefully, all conflict will be resolved as you begin to put into practice these elements here. If your relationship with the Lord is right, if your heart with the Lord is right, then your relationship with others begins to be right as well. It's when selfishness or selfish ambition comes in that you begin to have these disagreements with one another. Paul reveals that these ladies, though, because we want to be cautious, Paul is saying, as we look into verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, <clears throat> help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These women were fellow workers with Paul. They were prominent women in the church. They were prominent women during the time of the difficult work of planting the church. So not only are they prominent at the time that the letter is written to the church, but they were prominent during the time that Paul was evangelizing at the riverbanks. They were prominent and involved during those days. These ladies were active members of the church, not outsiders. They were long-term members of the church from the earliest days of the church, having personally shared in the difficult days of establishing the church at Philippi. It's interesting to note, and I'm going to do this briefly. It's interesting to note, you can write down Acts 16 and review this later. We've already done it, but I'm going to remind us because it's been a, a few months ago now that we did so. But it's interesting to note from Acts 16 how many roles women filled in the ministry at Philippi and how they filled them. A brief review because it's going to help us as we move on. The first group that Paul preached to that responded were women on the riverbanks. Lydia was among them, and she believed and was saved. She was a Gentile convert, a wealthy woman. Lydia opened her home, and her home became uh, the place where the first meeting place of the church. Paul and Silas were forced out of Philippi, but before they would leave Philippi, they would go back to Lydia's house and to be encouraged and encouraging to the believers at Philippi, mostly women. Through all of this, a number of additional women trusted in Christ as their Savior and endured the challenges and the difficulties of establishing a church in Lydia's home. Women took a significant element of the roles of leading this church, preaching the truth, proclaiming it to other women especially. The church began to grow. All of that is to say that these two women in chapter 4 had literally risked their lives. They had literally risked their lives. They were associates of the Apostle Paul. They were associates of Silas, who were driven out, both of them being driven out of Philippi. They had, Judea and Syntyche had not been sitting on the sidelines. They had been active and worked together, serving the Lord diligently and faithfully. So Paul begins to help us here as we understand some principles regarding disputes. 
principles regarding disputes. The dispute between these two ladies was not a doctrinal dispute. We, uh, I want to be careful here because there are doctrinal disputes that come up, but typically we will start a conflict over something insignificant, or we will engage in a conflict over something insignificant, and then we will make it doctrinal. We'll say, well, we're arguing over uh, the, the color of the carpet, but you really deny Christ. That's because it justifies our arguments. We find something to argue over. The dispute, though, between these two ladies and often between us and another is not a doctrinal dispute. That point needs to be made simply because the issues that distract and divide and bring disharmony to the local church are typically not doctrinal issues. Yes, there are doctrinal issues. The church had better know where it stands on key issues of doctrine. We need to know that, and we need to stand firm on that, and we need to be those who are willing to go to bat for those. But typically, divisions come over lesser non-doctrinal matters. The greatest threat to the church at Philippi wasn't differing views over the deity of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or end times theology. It was disharmony between two faithful charter members, and the church had begun to take sides. That was the greatest threat to the church at Philippi. Paul's already addressed the false teachers. There was a doctrinal reason. Paul called them out. Paul laid it out. But here Paul brings these two women, and he says, I want you to come together in harmony because the damage is about to be made. There's a few quick lessons here we need to learn as well. Disagreements and differences of opinion are inevitable in the church. When two people are together, there will be disagreements. Let us not have a pie-in-the-sky kind of view and believe that just because you're a Christian, you're not going to have conflict. You're going to have conflict, and probably more, because Satan wants you to have conflict. And yourself wants to have conflict because you want to protect self. So disagreements and differences of opinion are inevitable in the church. Second, that's the first lesson. Second, mature Christians don't always disagree agreeably. Mature Christians don't always disagree agreeably. This is important if you're a disciple of another mature Christian, of a mature Christian who you've watched at some point have a disagreement with somebody, and maybe that at some point is now. They're having a disagreement with somebody else, and as they have that disagreement, you, you sit back and go, wow, that was totally immature. How immature was that? Mature Christians don't always agree dis, or don't always disagree agreeably. These ladies were veteran saints. Something had happened. It would seem that rivalry or power struggle or vying for the same position for themselves or their husbands had led to some sort of disharmony that was now bringing sides to each other. This was an ugly argument. This was an ugly battle. Mature Christians don't always disagree agreeably. <clears throat> And finally, this lesson to learn at this point in a message is this. If left unchecked, disagreements between a few can harm the many. How serious had this disagreement gotten that Paul had to call it out in a letter written down for eternity? How serious of a conflict had erupted in this church? where Paul not only had to write down, but to name names. If left unchecked, disagreements between a few can harm many. Paul has called them together, but now Paul, and we've seen it, so we've kind of jumped over it a little bit, we want to go back to it. Paul is calling for an active participation from the saints of God at Philippi in the conflict. Notice, as there's a responsibility toward crisis, responsibility toward crisis. We find this in verse 3. It says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. I ask you also, true companion. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is your responsibility towards the conflict of others? What is your responsibility toward the conflict of of others. At the beginning of verse 3, Paul implores a true companion to help these women. 
there's much debate over who this true companion was. Was this uh, Timothy? Possibly. Was it Silas? Possibly. Was it a group of people? Possibly. Was it Epaphroditus? Probably. I would say if there was any one individual, it was probably Epaphroditus that Paul had in mind here. The titles that Paul has given to Epaphroditus up to this point would kind of points perhaps that Epaphroditus was one that Paul had in mind, especially since he was the one carrying the letter back and was most likely the one reading it at this moment. So it's possible that Paul had Epaphroditus in mind, but he doesn't say, and that gives us a a great understanding of what Paul really meant. He wasn't just talking about one true companion. He was talking about the faithful saints at Philippi. The truth is, we do not know who it was, and it really is not that important. Paul determined by the prompting of the Spirit that it wasn't that important. But what he was supposed to do is what the attention is drawn towards. So it's not who, but what. Not who was supposed to say, but what he was supposed to say. And that becomes very important for you and I. Paul asks for this person to help The word for help is fascinating because it's not the word that we would typically think that Paul would use. The word that Paul uses here for help carries a strong sense of physical action, to lay hold of, to bring physically together. It is used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 55, when it is translated arrest, to arrest. And so that is the the way that it is translated in Matthew, Luke Chapter 5, verse 9, as the disciples had caught fish, it was that word, caught, is the same word that is help here, to catch or to hold, to lay hold of. This is the only time that Paul uses this verb, the only time in all of his letters that he uses it, and he has in mind that his companion would take physical action to bring, physical and personal action, to bring these two women together. The idea is, come and Grab them by the arm and take them to the other and grab them by the arm and and bring them together with personal appeal to bring them to the same place. Paul's request for help could come to you as well as to Paul's true companion, whoever that was. Paul is calling you to do the same work. It is important that you and I are diligent to restore unity when disunity invades the church. You are not, listen carefully, you are not to take the sideline approach in conflict. Conflict isn't left up to church leadership. It's not left up to the pastor. It's not left up to the two individuals just to get it together and we'll all stand back and turn our head when conflict arises. Paul appeals to his true companion to grab Yudia by the arm and to grab Syntyche by the arm and to bring them together with personal appeal to help them navigate the differences that existed between them to diligently restore unity when disunity invades the church what would you say how would you say it Paul's request is already given notice what he says Back or continuing on in verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you, also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul gave to us some guidelines. Remind them who they serve. Remind them who they serve. They do not serve themselves. They do not serve their group that has listened to them they serve the lord and they have done so faithfully in times past they were fellow workers with the apostle paul and all of the fellow workers who were diligent in proclaiming the gospel together get back to proclaiming the gospel together remind them of the damage that is being done to the gospel even if they don't think that it is And we say, well, nobody else knows. Really? Because your names just got put down in a book memorialized for all eternity. 
They probably didn't believe that it was going to go this far, that they were just going to separate, that they could pass each other in the grocery store and all kinds of things and never have a problem. I don't need her anyway. She doesn't need me anyway. We're going to separate. But look at the damage that had been done in the church that Paul had to say something about it from Rome to Philippi. Beloved, damage happens when two believers are in conflict with one another. Damage happens. Paul is clear that the true companion was to grab both women by the arm, bring them together and say, ladies, sisters in Christ, you are sisters in Christ. You serve Christ. Don't damage the gospel for whatever is going on. Come together in unity. So there are some principles here. Some principles regarding resolution, and these are ones that we've kind of highlighted already. I'm going to pull more of them out. Paul's request for help gives some some real help to you and I. First, conflict is often resolved by the assistance of cooler heads. You can be in clear conflict with somebody, angry, But listen, if you're the one who's participating in conflict, listen to cooler heads. And if you are the cooler head, stay there. Be the cooler head. Don't take sides. Be the cooler head. Conflict is often resolved by the assistance of cooler heads. Second, when conflict arises, the church body isn't called to take sides, but to untangle the issues. Untangle the issues. When there is a divisive problem in the church, Paul is recommending that you actually get into the middle of it and start to pull the strings apart. Start to take the knot apart. Cooler head, yes. Not to take sides unless it's a clear doctrinal issue, in which case you have to stand firm on the Word of God. But if it is not a doctrinal issue, you are working to disarm the conflict pulling the knot apart, loosening up the the pieces that have been brought together so tightly that now there's tension at every point. Recognize that conflict is often resolved by the assistance of cooler heads. When conflict arises, don't take sides, but jump in to untangle the mess. Refuse to be on one side or the other. Disarm the conflict. Third, winning a personal argument. Listen carefully because this is where it goes. (coughs) Winning a personal argument is never more important than protecting the unity of the body of Christ. Winning a personal argument is never more important than protecting the unity of the body of Christ. Paul does not ask his companion. I love this. I love what we find here. Paul does not ask his companion to get rid of these women. Wouldn't it have been easier for uh, Epaphroditus to walk into Philippi and say, I've got a letter from Paul. By the way, uh, Judea and Syntyche, uh, you've been at conflict with one another. Uh, you're out. You hit the road. Uh, go to the, the second Baptist church down the street because uh, we're not having you here. Conflict is out of here. But Paul doesn't do that. There may be a time for that. That's through the process of Matthew 18, and there's a whole process of how this could take place. But Paul doesn't do this. And evidently, there's not a problem that arises because you don't have 1 Philippians and 2 Philippians. You have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because of conflict and disunity that was in the church, at least in part. But you don't have a 1 Philippians and a 2 Philippians. Evidently, these women were brought together in unity. Paul doesn't ask his companion to get rid of these uh, women or to take sides with one woman or the other or to name one the winner of the dispute over another. He simply wanted his friend to build a bridge between the two and lead them back over it to each other in unity in Christ. That's what it means to jump into the middle of it. You're not jumping into the middle of it to say, yeah, Yudia, uh, she actually wins this argument. That's not jumping into the middle of it. That's siding with one person. You're not jumping into the middle of it and saying, yeah, you're both a mess. 
there's no hope for you. (laughs) And get out. That's not jumping into the middle of it. Paul says to his companion, grab one woman by the arm and the other woman by the arm and build a bridge together that is built on the unity of Christ. That's why I had a start in John chapter 17 this morning. Because when we understand that Christ, as He's sweating drops of blood on His way to the cross, His prayer request is for you and I. That we may be in unity as He and the Father are in unity. Beloved, that is totally unique. That is totally just to the believers in Jesus Christ. No one else can enjoy that. Let us thoroughly enjoy that. Because one day in heaven, you're going to have a mansion right beside the other one. Let us be those who thoroughly enjoy it. The final phrase of verse 3 is a sobering and encouraging statement. Notice what he says. He says, they work side by side with the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. This is spread. Clement and the rest of the fellow workers, they know what's going on. He says this, but whose names are in the book of life. Paul has just spoke of eternity. And he speaks of eternity again at the end of verse 3. And in between, he speaks of the conflict of these two women. The final phrase of verse 3, Paul subtly reminded the church that we are all going to die. We pray for the rapture to take place. And and indeed, God's timing and God's direction, that that will happen. But it is also that which we are preparing for is our death. When we die, what will be said of us as it relates to unity and harmony of the church? Because you can't go back and fix it after that. So Paul, in a subtle way, saying all these names are written in the book of life. Paul just said what I said a few moments ago. You're going to spend eternity together. As believers in Jesus Christ, you're going to spend eternity together. And how absurd would the challenge of position, power, color of carpet, whatever it happens to be on this earth, look in eternity? What would be said of you with what's left? I often think of the, and the older I get, the more I see this, the the length of the church and some individual comes in with this fiery passion and this great ministry and three to five years later that's beginning to wane and it's it's burning itself out and and it goes to a different direction and all of the heartache and hurt that took place during that time where they just had to do this i've watched pastors do this church that i dearly love the pastor came in and removed every person in leadership and put in new leadership few years later he leaves the church and the church is left in disarray what will be said of your conflict not only is this phrase convicting and sobering but it's also encouraging as believers in jesus christ your name is written in the book of life isn't that a motivation for us to live in unity today You are written, if you know Christ as Savior, your name is written in the book of life. And when you arrive on heaven's shore, all of this fades away. Remembering that we are recipients of everlasting grace motivates us to resolve problems in the present with grace. This is why, by the way, if you've received an email from me or a letter from me, you'll notice at the end of every one of my letters I sign grace. Because this is why. This is why. I want to extend grace to you, and I appreciate it when you extend grace to me. This is is an everlasting grace. You You are recipients of an everlasting grace that motivates us to resolve conflict, to resolve problems in the present with the same mindset of grace. And again, that is uniquely and distinctly a Christian behavior. A true Christian behavior. Fred Smith tells a story about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Two men fell out out with each other over politics, personal slights, and both feeling betrayed by the other. The feud was known around Washington as these two statements abandoned all contact 
and correspondence with each, with each other for many years. 11 years, actually. But in 1809, another signer of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Rush, began urging these men to renew their friendship with each other and to begin corresponding with each other again. After several years of Rush's pleading, Thomas Jefferson uh, sent a very tentative letter to John Adams, who responded with a very guarded reply. It wasn't signed by Grace, or wasn't signed Grace at the end. A very guarded reply. One letter followed the, another until John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson on July 15, 1813. Never mind it, my dear sir. If I write four letters to your one, your one is worth more than my four. You and I ought not die before we have explained ourselves to each other. And restoration was found. The two men reconciled. Thirteen years later, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, both signers of the Declaration of Independence, both former presidents of the United States, died on the same day, July 4th, 1826. Today, their division is not as big a story as their reconciliation. In fact, if you were to type in uh, presidents who died on July 4th, there's actually three of the first five who did. It's a fascinating study. Uh, Three of the first five presidents who died, died on July 4th. But if you type in that, uh, you'll get two names that pop up, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And you won't figure out much about their conflict until you first see about their reconciliation. That's on Google. Reconciliation, top and center. Beloved, if that works for two guys who most likely did not know Christ as Savior. How true is that for you and I who do? May the story written about your conflict be more about its resolution and restoration than about the conflict. Don't be named in eternity. Judea and Syntyche. By the way, have you noticed those are not popular girls' names? Don't be known for an eternity as those who have conflict. Be known for an eternity as those who've been reconciled. Those who are reconcilers. Those who confront conflict before it erupts. Those who are willing to get into the fray and to untie the knot. To grab a believer by the arm and another believer by the arm and say, Beloved, you know Christ. There's unity in Christ. You can have disagreements, but they cannot rise to the point of conflict. They cannot rise to the point where you're going to have disunity brought into the church because the sake of the gospel, the name of the church, the testimony of our witness is far more valuable than the personal endeavors and slights that you may express. Let us be people who are known for rejoicing in the Lord always. That's Paul's very next statement. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are a people who are quick to protect our own. We are quick to protect those things that we see as um, necessary for us to accomplish or to achieve or to receive the accolades of other people. Lord, I pray that we would not value those things so much that we remove the value from the unity of the Spirit of God, the unity of the church that is found in Christ. Lord, If we were to take a poll of everyone who is here this morning, of those who have endured some sort of conflict within the church, I imagine every hand, older and younger, would go up. Conflict exists in the church because of our selfishness, Satan's attempts to divide and to be divisive. So Lord, we need your help. Pray that as fellow believers who are not engaged in conflict, we would be those who would boldly 
enter into the fray with cooler heads, not taking sides, but loving each on each side because they are believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, I praise you for this very important instruction that comes to us. And usually we pass over it, we, we may have a low laugh because of conflict that was in the early church. But Lord, I pray that we would also learn the lessons that were here. May we be those who seek to avoid the conflict. May we not be Judea and Syntyche. May we be those who are faithful followers of you. That your name would be glorified. That conflict would not be named among us that rises to the level of disunity and disharmony. But that we, like Christ, the night He was betrayed, would be those who are diligently praying for unity and harmony in the body of Christ. Lord, I also pray that if we are those who are divisive type people, that You would remind us and humble us to be more like Christ, to remove the elements that we believe, that we know the answer for everything, Lord, humble us in those things. Cause us to be those who are sensitive to the correction of other believers. Cause us to glorify you in all that we do and say. Lord, it is our great privilege and joy now to lift our voices in response. To sing praises, to exalt your name. Reminded of Psalm 45 that, re, that calls us to sing praise to our great God. I pray that our voices would unite now. There'd be no disunity, no disharmony. Our voices would unite now in glorifying you as we conclude our worship service over the next few moments. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. It is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.